Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Welcome in to episode 51 of The Bluest Tape. I am Harvey Couch alongside Jeff Kolath. And thanks for joining us as we take our weekly trip through the live catalog of Widespread Panic. Um, as we record, well, not actually as we record this, but as we release this, um, we are uh, we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of a very special moment in time for Widespread Panic. And um, so, uh, that is the sort of historic 10-night run at the Chesterfield Cafe in Paris, France. Ten shows, two five-night runs, essentially, starting on March 17th, 1998. So as we release this, 20 years prior, they're in, uh, in, the, in the midst of that first week. They did five nights, took two nights off, did five more nights. Um, so we got a lot of music to play. We have... Um, a special guest interview that we need to get to. So uh gonna do all that stuff. But um first things first, uh we do if you haven't if you're not familiar with the show, every uh every week our sort of jumping off point as far as our discussions outside of music, although sometimes they involve music, is a sort of recommendation of something that we had come across this week, whether it's um, you know, print, music moving pictures or anything like that. And um, so, uh, Jeff, do you have something good this week to uh, to share with the people? I do. Actually, I should have shared it last week because it was a little bit more time uh, appropriate. But it's an article from the Washington Post uh, from March 9th, um, which, which if you have Amazon Prime, you can use that to subscribe to the Washington Post. Um, and it was in the style section. It's an article by Chris Richards called Our Access to Music is Unprecedented. Why Does It Stress Us Out So Much? And it's essentially, it's about um, Spotify and streaming services and having these vast catalogs of music at our fingertips on each and every day. And it's just a really interesting look at sort of the flip side to say, oh my God, everything I could ever possibly want is on my phone or on my iPad or on my computer. And while at the same time of that is the the weight to me, I, which I agree with, it's sort of the general premise of the article, which is there is some weight to be associated with all of that too. Um, we just, uh, so my wife just subscribed to Spotify, I think just recently, and I you know piggyback off of it occasionally, but I'm still very much a physical music listener, with the exception of Archive.org and Panic Stream. And I find that, I find that difficult to believe, Jeff. I know, right? Um, but what some of the things he talks about is, is, is very true. And I, you know, something that he is, is, it says is, and unlike us, our most beloved songs no longer require a physical form. Music used to be something we owned discs or cartridges that we could touch, collect, swap and treasure. Now having ascended into the digital cloud, recorded music has become something we experience. The act of streaming transforms music from a noun into a verb, a thing into an activity. And he's right about that. 
is that when you don't, there is thinking about how we met Harvey, which was through the physical act of trading tapes mm-hmm. and trading through physical the mail. through the mail. Um, and all how the majority of the shows that we actually, all of the shows that we um, play on this, since we don't really play a lot of the stuff that's literally goes on to portable digital recorders. It was all done on DAT for the most part in some cassette, no mini disc, I don't think. Um, but it was all physical based media. And it's crazy to think that that has all just been kicked to the wayside and everybody talks about the resurgence of vinyl, but it is still makes up a very, very small percentage of, of, of what actually gets listened to. So anyway, it's just kind of a nice brief read. It's about literally like a 90 second, two minute read um, about this issue. And it's something that I think about a lot, especially in my job where we're working with musicians where physical media was their lifeblood um, in terms of getting records pressed, getting records sold, getting records on the radio um, and getting royalties from those records still today. Um, but obviously the royalties aren't from sales, the royalties are from licensing and such. So I think it's it's just a good look at it. Um, but and I agree with a lot of what he says, but it is sort of the... Um, that thing that I think a lot of us go through, which is you're in the record store, you find a record you really like, but do you want to spend $20 on it as opposed to going home and trying to find it on Spotify and just listening to it? You know, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. So I think that that's the other part of it is I think people, you take less risks now buying music because you can just listen to something streaming and pay nothing for it. Right. You're not invested in the, um, you know, well, I paid for this album. I'm going to give it a shot and listen to it yeah. a few times. Whereas, you know, you start streaming it and you're like, ah, I don't really like this next. <laughs> next. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, what, what's your pick for this week, Harvey? My recommendation is a, is also a, uh, an article. It's not as short. It's actually quite, quite a bit longer. Um, and that is, uh, it was from the March, 2018, uh, edition of Vanity Fair, uh, and it was an article written by Monica Lewinsky. Um, the title is Emerging from the House of Gaslight in the Age of Me Too. Uh, on the 20th anniversary of the Star investigation, which is crazy, it's kind of fitting that we're on the 20th anniversary of, uh, of the parishes and 20th anniversary of the Star investigation, uh, which introduced her to the world. The author reflects on the changing nature of trauma the de-evolution of the media and the extraordinary hope now provided by the Me Too movement. So um, it was a really cool uh, look into her, you know, psyche and as she's sort of trying to move past, you know, which I think what I think we would all agree was probably a pretty traumatic experience in her life (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And uh, she's really written from the heart and uh, you know, uh, irregardless of your politics, I think you can appreciate, uh, you know, what another human goes, has gone through and how she comes through the other side. So, um, it's definitely not a two minute read. So, um, you know, set yourself a little bit of time and, um, and check it out. It's, uh, it's really well done. Yeah. I've got it sitting on my kitchen table and maybe we'll read that before uh, bed tonight. So thanks for the recommendation. Sure. Um, okay. So, um, oh, we need to get, to, you know, let's get down to business here. Um, the first thing that we, uh, before we start getting into the music, um, reached out to uh, Jamie Syrek on Facebook, um, you know, who's a, who's a longtime panic taper and, um, you know, has been the source of a lot of the, uh, the music that we played on this podcast. And I asked him because I knew that he had gone to these parishes at the Chesterfield. 
Um, and so I asked him if he would come on the pod and talk to us about it. And um, he's, you know, in, in, in his not so polite way said, thanks for no thanks. <laughs> familiar with jamie um it just said you know it's not not really his thing and and i get that and um so but what he did which was really kind because he knows lots of people was he posted on his facebook page you know hey uh you know these guys are looking for some folks or anyone really uh that was at these shows you know to to share some of their memories and you know would anybody be up for it and uh, and he got quite a few comments and um the person who reached out and you know seemed the most interesting or most interested and the most interesting uh was a fellow named jonathan spencer and um i don't know how many folks on here are familiar with him but uh he was in athens uh in the you know in the in the 90s um and was uh, well I, i'll let him tell most of the story but um he was a big instigator in getting a lot of the uh the you know American folks over there, finding them a place to stay and, you know, sort of setting the whole thing up. But um, what's interesting is he was, you know, he, he was a, a musician, you know, played in some bands, played with Bloodkin and some other bands, but um, moved out to LA to become an actor. And um, I don't know if, did I, did I send you his, like, I, did you look at his IMDb page? I did not, no. Okay, so I'm just going to run through. Now, I mean, none of these are like, you know, they're mostly like one episode, like, you know, small parts. Um, but I'm going to read some of the uh, TV shows that he's had appearances on. Um, CSI, Gilmore Girls, Mad Men, My Name is Earl, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, True Blood, The Mentalist, Nip Tuck, Parks and Rec, Men of a Certain Age, Desperate Housewives, Shameless. I mean... That's a pretty, pretty good, pretty mm-hmm. good list of stuff. Um, he was in uh, in Pineapple Express. I don't. Do you remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Um, in the very first scene, the black and white scene, which is sort of a flashback, where they go down uh, into the bunker, and Bill Hader is, um, I guess, a like a soldier of some sort, and he's partaking in in marijuana and there's a, like a doctor who's in interviewing him. He is the doctor. So, um, <laughs> anyway, it's a really funny scene. You should check it out. If you haven't, you know, if you haven't seen that in a while, but, um, anyway, so he's a funny guy and, uh, he was there in Paris. And so we talked for a long time. Um, and we're going to do this Paris thing is going to be two episodes for us because they played 10 shows. We couldn't narrow it all down to one episode. So, uh, we're going to do the first week, uh, which, uh, I made the picks for the first week. That's this week's episode. And then next week we're going to do the second five shows and Jeff made those picks. Uh, and so we're going to split Jonathan's episode, uh, interview up into two parts. And so we're going to play the first part tonight or this week. And um, it's more giving some background uh, about his experiences in Athens and the band and sort of learning about uh, the Paris shows and um, you know, the, the process of organizing all that stuff. And then next week uh, is going to be more, you know, the actual experience in Paris and, and what that stuff was like. So um, what we're going to do is play, uh, play the interview with Jonathan, and then we're going to go straight into the first segment of music uh, for this week. And that is uh, from the first night, uh, March 17th, 1998 uh, at the Chesterfield cafe in Paris. And we'll come back and talk to talk about that uh, afterwards. But first things first, um, my uh, my discussion with uh, Jonathan Spencer. 
All right, joined now by Jonathan Spencer. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, thanks, Harry. Thanks for uh, having me, man. So, so we're doing uh, this, you know, this twentieth uh, anniversary spectacular of the uh, the ten nights in Paris with Panic, and you were there, right? Allegedly, I, I allegedly. So, the show, <laughs> I've seen the pictures, but the memories aren't clear. Uh, no. I was I was there for nine out of ten, and that's a pretty good story in in and of itself. Um, to do the Chesterfield Panic uh, run justice in a story, I kind of have to set up my own run leading up to that the year before in 97. Um, so I'd been living um, on and off in Athens for about six years at that point. And uh, just as all great, you know, Athens stories, Athens becomes you and starts swallowing you whole and you become it and it becomes you and you're one in the same. And um, around about 97, I mean, it was a really – um, it was kind of a spectacular second wave time for widespread panic. They were starting to sell out every single show they played. Every, everybody in the band was starting to make some money. Um, and, you know, they had outgrown the Georgia theater. They had put out the first brute record. So they were starting to get some, you know, some um, Athens always had one side of the tracks with Vic Chestnut and REM and all the cool kind of what we now right. call hipster. <laughs> we now call it hipster, but that word wasn't really popular then and then the other side of the tracks was you know the panic and the jam band <laughs> scene and all good and panic kind of you know the brute record had been out a few years at that point and um uh all the you know john king kind of brought everybody together in bloodkin and so kind of each side of the tracks were you know panic was starting to get some credibility within the hipster athens community not just the greater you know you know, frat rock community of the time that was selling out all their concerts. So I think that really meant a lot to the guys in the band as well, to just have some respect. And they were, you know, like I said, having some money and selling tickets. And the the writing was, was in, in my opinion, at its best. This was kind of the writing period for um, Till the Medicine Takes, um, right. leading up to the year, you know, fresh when they got back from Paris was, you know, Light Fuse Get Away in the Streets, which – they knew they wanted to do something big. They had no idea it was going to be that big. And, you know, then going into the studio and demoing for what became like, or what became Till the Medicine Takes that came out a year later. So they were just, you know, they were hitting all the balls out of the park at that point. Things were going really well for them. And they were still not so huge that they couldn't hang out when they got back to Athens. And um, from my kind of you know, it was the best of times for them. It was the best of times for me as well. I was about 23, um, 24 at the time in, uh, 97. And, uh, the only, uh, legal job I had was, uh, selling ads for flagpole magazine, which, you know, is every town's got one. It's one of these kind of like, you know, Democrat magazines that, you know, the backside of the paper is all filled with ads for transsexual dating and, the front side of the paper is filled with a nine-page essay about bike lanes. You know, we've all got those. <laughs> Every town's got that that rag that's free. And somewhere in the middle is a concert calendar of all your friends' bands playing at whatever bar that you go to anyway. Um, so I was selling ads for that, for the flagpole. And um, it was a great job, even though it didn't pay very well for a 23-year-old. Basically, what that meant was I spent all my time on a bicycle going to every club and every bar when they first opened in the afternoon before they were open to try to sell ads. And so I was, I, at that age, I was getting the skinny and the scoop on everything that was happening in the town 
kind of behind the scenes way before anything was official. I was, I was hearing things from club owners and, and who was coming in when. Um, and it was also kind of the time when um, everybody was starting to play under assumed names. You know, the Black Crows would pop into the 40 watt and play as Roach Clip. And, you know, REM showed up and played his bingo hand job. And I, I can't remember, Panic played as something. But like I said, everybody was kind of outgrowing their britches and having to make little maneuvers of, of hilarity to uh, to be able to play a show in their hometown. Um, I, think, I think Panic did uh, did some bar tab. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They did that yeah. a couple times in 95. Yeah, well, Danny Hutchinson, Bloodkin, that, that'll, that'll get to my, mm-hmm. kind of my connection to the whole thing. But Danny and... Todd Nance have been best friends for you know a millennium forever. So Bar Tab, um, and uh, also uh, the other spinoff was I think Barbecue, um, and it was all kind of variations on whoever's in town right now. Um, but Johnny Neff was in that um, for a while, and William Tonks, and um, you know Neff who played with the Truckers for a long time, and um, it, it literally was who was not on the road at the time. Uh, and I believe that was actually started as a joke between Hauser and Eric Carter of Bloodkin. And Hauser, so the story goes, or I've been told that Hauser wanted to start an ACDC cover band. And they showed up at Panic's practice space, the people that became uh, bar tabs. And nobody had practiced or learned any of the tunes. So they just kind of, they're like, well, we got a show tomorrow. What are we going to play? All right. Two of yours, three of mine, two of his, you know, and that's, that's what it ended up being. And that was a good times at the Hi-Hat Music Club uh, in Athens. And so my time, I would, when I finished my little newspaper route, so you call it, my ad selling route uh, for Flagpole on my bike, I would uh, finish my job at two o'clock in the afternoon uh, uh, when the Georgia bar would open <laughs> and I would park my bike uh, and, and find my way in there. And usually I was the second customer there midweek. The first customer was always Eric Carter playing pinball, uh, day drinking and throwing this is back when you're throwing peanuts on the floor. And that was completely acceptable. Peanuts and popcorn all over the floor and, time Xander Hannon had uh, inherited the bar from his dad who originally opened it and uh, Xander was kind of one of one of the guys kind of one of us just a little bit older than I am and was always packing a pistol under the cash register and always reminded everybody that he was doing so but both I had um, and Georgia bar both had these just god dirty what's the right analogy they had these upstairs areas that were off limits that had broken dirty mattress uh room with no lights that was uh, dirtier than a french whorehouse Uh, (laughs) in the 19th century does that get us towards where we're going but uh a lot of fun that i can't talk about in this podcast um was had in those upper rooms at both the hi-hat and the uh the georgia bar at that time and jojo was a jojo and Mikey were kind of frequenters of the George bar and schools kind of tended to lean towards the hi-hat, but you really, you had a 50% chance of seeing any one of those three, if they weren't on the road in the middle of the day or late in the after, you know, late in the day before the kids came in um, midweek at any time, you know, Jojo with his red wine and, and just bumping into them, they were, you know, the heat was there. You could tell they were excited about where they were at and um, through doing my, um, my ad sales run for flagpole and talking to, to, to various folks around town, I had heard about the Paris run um, being a potential thing that they were going to go at. 
I think the phrase was, we're going to go spend some money because <laughs> they knew they weren't going to make a mm. dime there. Um, this is, of course, when Mary and Brown Cat were running the show. And um, I was, so I, I play, I mean, I'm an actor professionally now, but uh, at the time, the only modeling and acting I did was, uh, I, I think my first actual paid uh, quote unquote acting modeling job was I passed out on the black couch at the Georgia bar circa 98, early 98. And I, it's, it's up to uh, debate whether I spilled a tall boy, natural light uh, between my legs when I fell asleep on that couch <laughs> or whether I urinated myself is, is it's under debate, which one, but a black and white picture of this event was taken and I was not uh, ejected from the George bar it being the Georgia bar, Xander ran that picture in the flagpole the next week as come to the Georgia bar. So we all won because I got to sell an ad for flagpole. I got my first first modeling acting job, potentially urinating myself. Um, although I'm going with natural light tall boy and passed out. So. Um, but you can tell the sun's out through the windows. So. So, so at this point you're starting to, I mean, you're feeling like, you know, I mean, the band is hitting all cylinders at this point yeah, yeah. and and there's some buzz about this, this Europe thing, right? Even if they're not going to make any money. Right. And there's, there's this local buzz, you know, there's buzz around town that like there's rumor. And of course this is at the time there was spread net, but I mean, we were barely graduated from bulletin boards at this time. You know, it was, it was an email. It was a mail list, you know, absolutely. It was a mail list and you had to wait for it to come come out and be released each day. Or or at that point it might've even been weekly, but there were bare bones tools to kind of network and put something together. Um, especially as far as like leaks and, you know, people would literally never talk to you again if the leak got back to you, but the buzz was there and we, we, you know, people knew it was coming, um, at least in town. And so I was, uh, coincidentally, uh, I was living in a house on Habersham road, right off a millage that was, uh, uh, Lenore and Randall Bramblett's guest house. And it was formerly their garage that they, in the days before Airbnb, they had finished up and turned it into a little two car garage apartment that I lived in right next to their house. Um, and so, you know, I'd hear things. Randall is the Randall's. I always call him the sober judge, you know? So if you hear it from Randall, it's, it's definitely truth. It's, it's not rumor from him. Um, and so, yeah, Randall and I trying to two idiot musicians on, on top of a roof, trying to peel a satellite dish back, but I knew I'd always get the truth from him or I'd get nothing from him. Cause when they're silent, that's always the truth. But Randall being the sober judge that he is, he wasn't too much into the, the rumors, but back in the Georgia bar, uh, you'd hear everything under the sun, uh, with the truth mixed in there somewhere. Um, and I've, I've also, you know, I'm a, actor professionally now that was nowhere near my sights back then um but i've always played bass uh as well and at that time i was playing in a band with todd mcbride called world of gamblers and he had uh he was about 10 years older than me still is and um he had been in a band with vic chestnut called the lottie Dawes uh before he was in dashboard saviors and um so so Todd was always, you know, I was a panic fan, but he truly was a friend of theirs. I mean, he was, he was buddy buddies and of their, you know, of their age and, and pals with them. So I got, you know, I got a little more access to Vic and all, to all the guys in panic through Todd is, you know, Todd always kind of delivered with a stern, you know, don't be a fan, you know, just be a friend, act cool, be cool, Spencer, <laughs> be cool 23 year old that I'm letting <laughs> hang out with all the cool people, you know. 
<laughs> We've all been through that one. But so I was getting, you know, I was hearing these these truth and rumors from all kinds of different sources, um, good and bad. And it was all kind of coming together that something big was about to happen. And it was, you know, spending some money in Europe. Um, and uh, as we said, the days of Spreadnet. So I, uh, I believe what went down was I think I tore my ankle in a drunken war wound over Thanksgiving. And I think I was in a boot which meant I was at my parents' house in Atlanta, uh, you know, on legal painkillers and not going to the bar for a few weeks over Christmas. <laughs> and um, uh, I had a lot of time to go on SpreadNet and do internet research or the web or Netscape or whatever it was at the time. And I just went ahead and I had kind of a half-assed high school background in French. And, you know, the, the back in my drinking days, the more I drank, the better my French was. And so I, I just got on the phone and started using my kind of bullshit high school French knowledge and started calling around to different places that I thought we didn't have anything about the Chesterfield, but that could potentially house a, you know, a rock band of any kind. And I looked at their version of their Democrat arts and crafts concert calendar magazine <laughs> and uh, found the Paris version of that. And literally made a guess that it was this place, Chesterfield, because their concert calendar was booked, booked, booked with all. It was a it was billed as a it's kind of a knockoff of a hard rock cafe. Uh, they were the bragging that they were an American style bar with, you know, onion rings and monster, you know, burgers, and the, you know, that go up to your fist and all that. And uh, their little concert room, which we later found out what that was about, um, was booked with all kinds of bands that were kind of in the right, you know, wheelhouse. It had like, they, I saw, I remember seeing on the concert calendar, like G love and special sauce were playing there in January. And, you know, uh, 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 the mm, band, I can't really go with the really deep uh, crash course. test dummies. Yeah, crash test dummies were playing. Right. <laughs> so, so it, it wasn't exactly like jam band world, but for Paris, I was like, hmm, this is a really good candidate. And then I noticed that they had two weeks blocked off with no announcement and no bands listed. And then right after that two weeks blank on the calendar, they picked right back up with their, you know, the cran not the cranberries, but I don't know, Ooh, rest in peace, whatever, you know, that these, these type of American bands that might fit for this joint that were small enough um, to get in there. And, uh, and at this point, I think we knew that it was a two-week run that was being rumored, but we didn't know where. So I just kind of did a guess. And then sure enough, I called on a so, so one of the, 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 the little hot waitresses at the Chesterfield Cafe who all dressed like American sorority girls, of course. Um, this is back in panic tube top days when all the panic girls were all wearing hot tube tops all the time. God bless you all out there. <laughs> And uh, talked to, and all the waitresses spoke English, but they were generally the only people in the whole bar or restaurant who spoke English for the waitresses, and better than my, you know, redneck Southernese French. And I found a, a cute one. I still, her voice was cute, at least. I remember to this day, Natalie. And she was like, Call, I tell you what, Spencer, you call my manager, Stacy, on Monday at, you know, 11 a.m. Paris time, whatever it was. And tell her I told you, and we'll help you figure it out. Because I was just pleading and pleading and pleading, trying to get answers. And so sure enough, 4 o'clock in the morning, Eastern, 11 a.m. down there in Paris, I get Mary on the phone, and she says, oh, yes, yes, the panic band. Oh, yes, they're playing to it. Just I've been trying to pull the teeth. And she was just like, oh, of course they're playing, you know. So I said, well, how does it work there? And I didn't let her know it was a big deal. 
how does everything work there as far as she's like, oh, no, it's free. And I'm like, free? What? <laughs> what? How do I get tickets? You know, what do you mean it's free? It's like, no, no, no. You just, you know, line up at the door. Everybody will get in. No problem. Everybody <laughs> yeah, gets in. I'm like, oh, you have no idea the, the invasion of the barbecue Southerners that's about to uh, come to your uh, establishment there in the C-Sarandismont in Paris. And uh, I said, well, you know, if you don't want to wait in line, what do you do? I said, do I, you know, if I come order a burger and get a table at three o'clock in the afternoon, can I still sit at that table, you know, seven hours later when the band starts? Being 23, you're willing to do things like show up at the venue seven hours early to get a good seat and, you know, wear a free sample of Depends so you can pee yourself and not have to move at that break. <laughs> Not that I, okay, yeah, I've done all those things before. <laughs> so, um, so she said, well, you, you actually, if you have a party of uh, eight or more, we have four tables right at the front in front of the band that you can reserve. Table mm. on de trois cat. Like, um, <laughs> is table one of tab- table uno, table unavailable, please? She goes, oh, yes, nobody's called except for you. You're the first. Mm. I'm like, oh, okay, I will take table one for all 10 nights. I'm just sitting there just so excited. And I said, like, you don't have a recommendation for, you know, a really affordable, you know, not too touristy mom and pop kind of hotel motel within walking distance? She's like, oh, yes, my aunt and my uncle own the Hotel du Printemps, which means the Hotel of the Spring, mm-hmm. right by the Printemps Shopping Center. Mm-hmm. And the Printemps Shopping Center which is the big famous, that and Galleries Lafayette are the big, big famous shopping centers in Paris that the tourists go to, was under uh, construction, reconstruction. Long story short, it was closed. So this hotel that her uncle and aunt uh, owned was offering bargain box rates. Plus, it was basically the winter to them. It was the beginning of March, but it was still cold and rainy. Mm. So I rented... I hadn't even got, I'd barely been off the phone for two hours at this point. Hadn't even gotten on spread net. Had already gotten a confirmation that it was Chesterfield. Already got a table for eight front row JB <laughs> for 10 nights. You know, uh, this all happened, came together in two hours. Got a local hotel motel, got her aunt and uncle on the phone, used my redneck French to rent two floors. Oh, Jesus. Uh, maxed out my credit card. Uh, then, and they're still, they're thinking it's no big deal, no big deal. And then got back on or got on spread net that night and just, I don't know, God, I'm sure the records are somewhere. And I just spilled the beans everywhere and told everybody, you know, I might've exaggerated my French skills. I probably did. I said, I'll be like Julie, the cruise director on the love boat. (laughs) The rooms are for sale for X, which was a small percentage more than I was paying for them. But Mm. I was going to make sure, not exorbitant, but a little more than, you know, blanks for postage. I was going to make sure that my trip was free at least. And uh, um, sure enough, they ended up giving me my my girlfriend at the time and her best friend. We got our room for free, which was super cool. And I think we had a total of um, 16 rooms in the end. So a lot of people mm. took me up on my offer, which was still a great deal. We ended up getting this hotel for half price since the department stores closed. And it was a little less than a kilometer from the venue. So what's that about 0.7 somewhere around there. Um, it was, you know, I don't know. It was a, a 12 minute fast walk, a 15 minute normal walk and a, a 25 minute drunken stroll bar crawl um, back from the Chesterfield. And so I was sold out once I got there. And uh, when the first night we 
our plane got canceled uh, going out of Atlanta to Paris. And I was just, I've, I've, I've never been so upset in my life. Right. But our flight got canceled and we missed the first night's show. And oh, heartbreak. That's why I said I went to nine out of 10. Totally heartbreaking. Um, and uh, I had done, you know, all this planning, all this scheming and jiving to try to pull all this off and the whole thing's falling out from under me and so i don't show up for night one to table one in front of jb with eight seats and i'm thinking oh god
night of the epic 10 night run at, run at the Chesterfield in Paris, March 17th, 1998, uh, jam into I'm not alone into tie your shoes into good morning, little schoolgirl. And the thing that I just, that you, we had another selection that was on the table for this one. And the thing that just struck me is this, these, these guys were playing in New Zealand five days before this run. Yeah. And man, did they hit the ground running? I mean, yeah. just, playing with intention right off the bat and this is a nice a nice little run um or a nice little segment of a later part of the show um that's about a seven and a half minute tie your shoes that is just brilliant brilliantly concise tie your shoes no noodling straightforward in your face hits it hard and then that's it i mean it's just a great great little segment this um I mean, just you know, from a high level, these all five of these shows are just so good from start to finish. I mean, I enjoyed every minute, and um, it's just cool to hear 
it, it's so, you know, so obviously such an intimate place and, um, you know, a little rowdy the crowds, a little rowdy. Um, but what, you know, what else do you expect a couple hundred people in a small place like that with, you know, just on top of the band. But, um, the other thing that stuck out to me is that, uh, you know, I guess I always had it in my mind that this tour was like a big European tour, but, um, you know, I mean, they did the six, five shows in Australia, one in New Zealand, um, and then they do these 10 nights in Paris, and then it's Amsterdam, Hamburg, and London, and then that's it. So it really wasn't, you know, a big, sprawling European tour. It was, you know, a, a, a pretty big Australian tour, and then a massive stand in Paris. Um, you know, obviously, they've never come close to playing 10 night, you know, 10 shows in a row in a single venue before or since. Um, and then, you know, three, three one-off shows after that. So, um, it's just such a cool, unique, uh, situation. So I'm glad that we're sort of revisiting and celebrating it. Um, musically, I really like this, this segment. Um, the jam out of drums was really cool and, and mellow and, um, you know, I'm not alone is sort of a fitting song for, um, you know, being in a, being a strange place with, with, uh, you know, familiar faces. Um, and then, yeah, no, the tire shoes is just, is scorching. Nance is just all over it. Um, and then, uh, awesome to hear Schoolgirl is the first time they had played it in, uh, they didn't play it at all in, in 1997. So it had been new, new year's 96 was the last time, um, until this. So, uh, I think was it, uh, 128 shows. So, um, so yeah, this is a good, uh, this is a good piece again. I mean, I was having a hard time, like really I'd find like two or three segments from each show. Like I could do this or I could do this or I could do this. <laughs> um, and so this is the, this is the, the selection from the first night. The opening segment is really good too, with the stop, go Hatfield walking Avis, but, mm-hmm. um, but went with this instead. So um, we're going to move on to the uh, second and third nights. We'll play both of those here uh, together, March 18th and March 19th. And, um, and we'll come back and talk about them uh, after that. Uh, we pick things up. Uh, and again, I think important to mention that all of these shows were one set shows. Um, and, you know, really, uh, I mean, had they done that? before this tour you know like in a while can you recall any sort of extended one set show um i mean maybe a one-off like festival here or there you know in the summer but um but like as far as you know multiple nights in a row doing one sets um i can't think of anything like that and and it really does sort of afford them more flexibility with the set list you know um they're not sort of beholden to the standard um, structure of a set list, mm-hmm. uh, a two set show, you know? Um, and so it allows them to get a little more, um, I don't know. I mean, like get a little more into it earlier, you know, mm-hmm. get, get a little further out there earlier and not have to sort of wait till the second set to do that kind of stuff. So I think that, that, uh, opened up, you know, the opportunity to do some, some cooler stuff here. So, um, on the uh, the second night, the eighteenth, um, the the segment that that I picked is uh, pretty much right in the middle of the middle of the set. They open things up: pigeons, tall boys, sleeping man, please, Jack, dying man. Um, 
and then uh, slow things down uh, with this uh, Van Morrison cover. Cheers, everybody! Yeah! What spread panic? What a spread panic? Panic general au Chesterfield Café. Avec euh, un phénomène là ici, vraiment un phénomène, ce groupe de Georgie qui attire quand même 200 fans américains ici au Chesterfield Café. Alors, le Chester n'a plus de table, n'a plus de chaise, tout est mis de, de côté et tout le monde danse, tout le monde. C'est la grande transe, vous voyez, une rêve un petit peu où tout le monde danse, tout le monde délire. Et bien c'est ça, pour mettre un peu les choses au bout du jour. Mais sinon, c'est l'ambiance Woodstock au Chesterfield Café. Tout le monde alors transpire comme jamais. Moi, ça me fait penser, la dernière fois que c'était comme ça, c'était les, les Tower of Power qui étaient venus ici au Chester. C'était exactement la même ambiance. Sauf que là, il n'y a plus de table, il n'y a plus rien et tout le monde danse autour de nous. Le Chesterfield Café est devenu euh, plus un café, une véritable salle de concert. On nous regarde et je fais des signes parce que c'est vrai que tout le monde sourit, tout le monde est cool, tout le monde est très très bien. C'est le Wild Esprit Panic ici au Chesterfield Café et c'est en direct sur WFM.
Esprit Panic en direct du Chesterfield Café en direct sur WFM comme tous les mercredis soirs ce soir. Panique au Chester avec une ambiance de folie, grosse suée et le Chester transformé en dance floor carrément.
selections from the second two, the second and third nights of the epic uh, Chesterfield Cafe run of 1998, March 18th, and it stoned me, and then Love Tractor into Just Kiss My Baby, and then from March 19th, uh, the two opening songs of the set, Ain't No Use into Fishwater. Um, I think I texted you a couple times um, using words that I shouldn't, I won't say on the podcast about <laughs> the, this version of Love Tractor, but damn, it is, uh-huh. it is heat it is the heat um i think it's like 12 minutes long and again how long of us how long a song is doesn't necessarily mean that it's good but it is intense i mean these again like i said about the last section these guys came to play and it, it's it's they're, they're clearly feeding off the crowd too um because it's i mean it's a bunch of hard cores that made that trip and you know it'd be interesting yeah. to i mean to take a take a survey of everybody that was there and it's like how many shows have you been to where are you from and how many shows have you been to um mm-hmm. but imagine if that was like your first sort of experience like is it always like this with 200 people in a bar in paris that you know <laughs> everybody in the crowd knows what's going on yeah yeah um the uh the other segment from the show that i that i really wanted to use is the post drums because um there's like a super long like Wrangler jam, like sort of like the end jam to Wrangler, like leading up into the space Wrangler, which is really cool. Um, and then Papa's porch song, Henry Parsons to close it out really nice post drums. But yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't leave this, uh, this stone me love tractor. Just kiss my baby alone. It was just too good. Um, and then, uh, and then the next night on the 19th, um, picked out the uh the opener and i think honestly you could probably have picked the opener for each of these shows mm-hmm. <laughs> to, be, yeah. to, to be the because it seemed like they just they came ready to go every night um but uh but on this occasion it was um it was another meter song ain't no use uh in fishwater so sort of a cool um new orleans you know f- french inspired you know one two punch to kick things off on the third night yeah, it's great. And I think the you know use is is pretty excellent. Um Joe very Jojo centric version of uh Ain't No Use in that latter half. So it's it's a great way to start the show and again another overall solid show. All right, so um we got two more nights to finish out the first five nights, which will complete the first half of the, of the ten <laughs> um from twenty years ago. And um so, uh, so the, the show, the, the songs from the 20th, um, which again, man, this one was hard to choose from too. There's so much good stuff here. Um, I mean, a chilly way to the world, chilly opener, um, rhyme high, low rider wondering, um, just, just really, really good. But, um, the segment I pick is right after that, uh, leading into drums and, um, kicking off uh kicking it off with a pretty fitting song for this tour and that's uh vacation
right, the last two selections for uh, this week's episode, um, March 20th and March 21st, 1998. The first selection right at the end of the, uh, of the set, Vacation into Diner into Papa Legba. And then March 21st, go, Going Out West into Dream Song. Um, so yeah, the first, first selection from the f- fourth night, um, diner or vacation diner, Legba leading into drums, uh, just really good and, and raw and great. You know, I mean, the, the thing that's sort of consistent through this is just the crowd participation, you know, and reactions and appreciations, uh, of songs that you just aren't used to, to hearing, um, it's just cool to hear. Um, and then, uh, the fifth night when, um, you know, the sort of wrapping things up for the first week, um, the encore really struck me. Um, just a, you know, loud, rowdy going out West. I mean, everybody's into it, singing along and then, um, and then dropping into dream song. And I mean, I'm pretty sure you can hear like literally audibly hear people shushing other people. Um, you know, as they try to get people to, to calm down and, um, you still hear the, you know, drunk people chattering and stuff, but, uh, it's, you know, it's just not something you hear. Right. I mean, it's like, it's such a small venue that you can actually hear the people talking and trying to make sure that everybody's quiet so they can hear this, uh, this dream song to close out, uh, the first week. And, um, if you're into like statistical type things, um, you know, they did not repeat a song through the first four shows of the run. Um, this fifth show on the 21st, they brought back uh, three songs that they had played earlier in the run. And the, those were um, Love Tractor, Port Song, and Henry Parsons Died. So um, other than that, the first five shows were all uh, no repeats, um, which is pretty cool uh, for this point in the band's uh, history. Um it, um, but yeah, this you know this run. I guess I will admit, for some reason, I never really sp- have spent that, a ton of time with it. I think partially because there are a couple of reasons. One is the tapes aren't that good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the sonic quality of the shows aren't that good. Frankly, I'm surprised the band doesn't have hasn't put something out in official form for these. Um, are you really surprised though? Well, I guess and no. I mean. I mean, they should have, right? I mean, there's like they no reason that they I mean, shouldn't have. They really, they could have know. done. They could have done a best of the run compilation or something like that. Um, there's that soundboard or the FM recording from the second night. I think that mm-hmm. that's on Panic Stream that obviously has some clarity and some great French language, you know, voiceover stuff. That's yeah. um, Panique. That's Panique. But uh, but it's these shows are just they're 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 really interesting because of because the crowd is so engaged and so involved and you can hear them and it's Mm -hmm. like what you would hear probably on a bigger stage at a big show, but you just don't hear it because, because you can't hear it. Right. But it's like, it's, I mean, it's just widespread panic playing in a bar and it just sounds like the shows would have sounded like, you know, at the uptown lounge or in Athens or something like that in 89, except the people probably had more money. Um, and probably a lot of people that were in college in 89 that were able to make that trip over. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's just a, it's a really fascinating snapshot of a band. It's, and again, I think these March 
shows 95 96 97 98 are just so critical in the evolution of the band it's like some really cool special things happen in the month of march not only for college basketball but for for widespread panic and they had four years in a row where you know these sort of landmark things happened and um but yeah i just it's it's i think probably the crowd noise bugged me but now listening to it it's an integral part of the experience listening to these shows and i'm actually kind of glad that those tapes are the way that they are (laughs) yeah you sort of appreciate the the environment the experience a little more yeah um, than just the Um, music and, and again i mean i don't know how um you know you know I don't know the footprint of the Chesterfield cafe. I do think the Chesterfield's closed now and not obviously not having been there. Um, but you know, just seeing a, a band with a band like panic in that space that had played arenas at that point, had played sheds at that point um, and sticking them in this 250 person, you know, venue and thinking about some of the bars and like you're in Memphis and in my hometown, like, trying to put yeah. that to a like set together like 12 like, inches off the ground like, you know doesn't this doesn't compute at all mm-hmm. so i think that's what makes it really special yeah um no and i think it was definitely like you said i think this is just like uh the 95 tour just like the sit and ski just like spring 97 and then this it really were you know gro- growth moments of growth for the band and um you know you wonder too like if if this ability to to get creative and play these, um, these one set shows, you know, led them to the travel and light tour, you know, in the summer where they played these, you know, similar sort of one set shows, um, in these big sheds with these other, you know, these other bands. And, um, cause a lot of those set lists are, are similar. Although I think there's a little more, um, they're digging a little deeper in these Paris shows just because of the, the volume of the, of the shows. But um, yeah, they're all, um, all, you know, sort of tipping points for the band. Can you have multiple tipping points or is really, can you only have one tipping point? I think you only have one tipping point, but you could yeah. have landmarks. How about or that? How about inf- inflection points? Inflection those? points. That's good. I like that. Okay. Let's all go right. with that. Okay, cool. Uh, as long as Malcolm Gladwell will approve. Um, <laughs> All right, so um, that's all we've got for uh, the Paris shows. You know what's crazy to think is like tw- this is 20 years ago and you were talking about those Uptown Lounge shows. Those were only like 11 or 12 years prior to this. So almost twice as long ago, you know, from today than what the Uptown Lounge were, sh- were to those mm-hmm. shows. Because, um, you, you know, in, in hindsight, it's like that was, a, that was almost a – fully formed band at that point. You know what I mean? Like they were mature in 98. Um, and, but they were really just only, you know, a little more than a decade, really only a decade removed from playing, you know, frat parties and, and little clubs. Sure. Um, yeah. So fun to celebrate the 20th anniversary. Um, appreciate everybody's, uh, joining us. Um, again, we, we haven't talked about them, uh, in a couple of weeks, but, um, you know, we're really super excited to be part of the Osiris Podcast Network. If you guys have not checked out the other podcast, uh, there's some really great ones. Adding more like every day. Um, there's an awesome craft beer podcast, which I'd like to think we maybe had something to do with because we did a, a beer <laughs> podcast. I know the other guys on Slack were really excited about that. So um, that was cool. And um, yeah, so just uh really some really good stuff so you can't go wrong check it out there's there are just some 
some really good podcasts there. So OsirisPod.com. Um, but uh, anyway, so that, that's about all all I got this week, Jeff. You anything for the people? No, I mean, I think we, we, speaking of folks we haven't thanked in a little while, again, thanks to all Ted and everybody that put together their Everyday Companion. Thanks to our good friend Curtis George at Panic Stream. Um, and uh, as the news shows for the rest of 2018 start to roll out, make sure you jump onto Panic Stream for live streaming of, of all of those shows. And um, and again, wanna, like you, I want to echo the thanks or the gratitude of being part of Osiris. And also just want to throw it to our our original version of a song this week, one I don't think we've done yet, which is Tom Waits' version of Going Out West. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week for episode 52. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com.